Hey, good morning. I am really excited about this show. We got John Gordon, the famous author. He is one of those guys that you just like talking to. The Energy Bus, one of the most famous books ever, right? I mean, he's got a new book out. You got The Carpenter coming out. Positive team. My wife is so excited that John Gordon is going to be on our show that she may actually pull off. It's kind of ironic. John Gordon went to Cornell, played lacrosse. My wife is on her way to Cornell as the crim of Harvard softball. Get ready to take on, I don't even know, whatever the hell the Cornell are. The fighting Cornells, baby. And if the crim win two games, they're in the championship against Princeton. It's big right here. Don't at me, people. It is big. Hey, uh, fellers, can you put up the Elon Musk tweet of the day? Can we get a little musky for us right here? Look at Elon Musk, NBC basically saying Republicans are Nazis. Same organization that covered up Hunter Biden laptop story. Had Harvey Weinstein's story early and killed it and built Matt Lauer his rape office. Lovely people. Elon Musk ain't playing. Seriously, Elon Musk, wow. Man, he's not talking about some neighborhood grocer here. He's talking about the National Broadcast Company, NBC. Welcome, everyone. Elon Musk tweeted a day is always fantastic. We will continue it as long as Elon Musk keeps giving us ammunition. Actually, not ammunition, just the goods. He's given us the goods, people. He's absolutely given us the goods, and I like the goods. You know we love the goods here, big night in NBA, but the news of the day, look, the mad crapper strikes again. I tell you this all the time. It's always the same people. And DeAndre Hopkins has been, uh uh-oh, has been okay. People are writing nice stories about him. But the truth of the matter is, DeAndre Hopkins, who got in trouble, I'll let you look it up at the Combine, he's back in business. Remember when he was traded? Oh, my God, everything went to hell in a handbasket. Articles, front page of ESPN, the magazine. What a great dude this is. Come on. Uh, He's back at it again. Six games, PEDs, obviously says he didn't do it. He's very careful what he puts in his body. Uh, small trace of something, something. But to get six games, it's pretty definite you did something. And if you're going to try to cheat the system, the system's going to come for you in the NFL, certainly when it comes to PEDs. Now, I don't want to get into the mad crapper stuff. It was when he was in college. Uh, but it is kind of funny. I always follow guys that have problems in college. And most, if not all, although not all, get in trouble again. They just do. I'm not saying it's anything nefarious. I'm not saying it's anything incredibly problematic. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying to you that it is usually the same people that get in trouble. Time after time after time. If you get in trouble in college, chances are eventually something's going to happen. When you get in the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, or in this case, the NFL, it just does. I'm sorry. I know they're just kids, and I know we're all supposed to make excuses. Look, I get it. You're not going to tell me anything that I don't know, but this I do know. It just seems to follow certain folk. It just does. It's called the Steve Howe rule. I've talked about this many times. Hey, dog, you and I are going to throw hands back there. 
I don't know what the hell. Lula usually sits over here. Lula's my dog. She usually sits over here and is quiet, but she's looking at me and she's barking. I don't blame her. I did shave today, so maybe she doesn't recognize that I'm sitting right here. But anyway, I digress. It's called the Steve Howe rule. Steve Howe, a reliever for the Dodgers back in the day, best in baseball. He just kept, he couldn't get rid of cocaine. He just couldn't. I'm sorry. And he kept, when I was a kid or when I was in that age, it was like, damn, I'm reading about this again. Is this from before? Or is this still from now? I don't know. What is this from? It just was over and over. So I've always paid attention to it, starting with Steve Howe. You can look it up, H-O-W-E. It's like over and over and over again. And then when I coached, it was like the same dudes. And actually, in me, people in Indianapolis, it's always Dockage that the Indy Star writes about. I mean, come on, Dockage, straighten your act out. I get it. (laughs) I do. But DeAndre Hopkins, man, six games. All right. There is full of crap, and then there's Hugh Jackson. Now, I don't know if you remember back on this story, but back when uh, Brian Flores was let go, surprisingly so, I think, to a lot of people, by the Miami Dolphins, he alleged a number of things against the Miami Dolphins, one of which was Stephen Ross, the owner, incentivized losing. He said, hey, look, I'll give you bonuses if you lose. Well, Hugh Jackson thought that he would jump in on this. Now, Hugh Jackson, I've met one time. Sitting at St. Elmo's, it was me, Urban Meyer, Pete Thamel, sitting at a table at the Combine, just having a couple beers and something to eat. Hugh Jackson sat down. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this is a dumbass. I know, hey, judgy, I get it. But that's all I was thinking. Man, this guy's a dumbass. Like, next thing you know, I think he became the coach of the Raiders. Then he became the coach of the Browns. I'm not sure. Maybe he was coach of the Raiders then. I'd have to look up when this was. I can't really remember. It was a few years ago. I wasn't married, so it's more than six years. And the only reason I remember that is because I remember calling Lee on the way home. Uh, She was in Syracuse. So had to be more than six years. Why do I remember calling Lee on the way home to tell her that Hugh Jackson was a dumb, <laughs> dumbass, truthfully, and just to tell her good night. But anyway, uh, so Hugh Jackson alleges this. He's going to jump into the fray, except Hugh Jackson's too dumb to understand what the fray actually is. When you say that an owner of an NFL team or that a front office of an NFL team uh, is wanting to lose and incentivizing losses, I would like to get up and get this dog out of the house but I'm going to have to deal with it for the first half hour. Lula, I swear to God, you and I are throwing hands. But anyway, I digress. So Hugh Jackson jumps in and says, well, you know, my 3-36-1 and and record is the result of a lot of things. And one of those things is that the Cleveland Browns wanted me to lose. Oh, is that right, Hugh? Okay, well, we take this very serious as they should. Now listen to this. An independent review was set up by the NFL. It was started by Mary Jo White. Mary Jo White is a former uh, Securities and Exchange Committee chairman. So she does a review. Guess who, damn, guess who didn't meet with the committee? Guess. Hugh Jackson. Yeah, he didn't meet with him. He's got all these allegations. What happened here was obvious. Uh, Hugh Jackson decided, hey, look, 
I'm going to make these allegations to support my friend, but I'm too stupid to know what the end game here is. And just like I'm too stupid to let my dog out. But Hugh Jackson decides, all right, I'm going to enter the fray. But he doesn't understand that, guess what? The NFL is actually going to take this serious. And you're going to have to go in front of an independent arbitrator, and you don't want to do that. So Hugh Jackson doesn't show. So guess what? They do have his statements, though. So they investigate his statements. And you and I both know what comes out of this. This is easy. When you're incredibly stupid uh, and you make incredibly stupid comments, those comments are 9 out of 10 times rebuked. 99.9, 10 times rebuked. And Hugh Jackson obviously got rebuked. And the NFL came out and said, hey, uh, yeah, this is unsubstantiated. There's nothing here. And good for the NFL. Now, you could say to me, well, why would Hugh Jackson go in front? Well, you made the comments. You want to be a big guy? He wanted to be a big guy. He went on social media, and he wanted to be a big guy. I'm going to help my friend Brian Flores. I'm going to make an excuse for my 336-1 record. Look, anybody that watched Hard Knocks and saw Hugh Jackson conduct a team, same with Mike Smith. Remember when Mike Smith was the coach of the Atlanta Falcons? We used to talk on my show all the time, that dude getting fired. That dude dumb as a fence post. That dude can't coach blind turkeys to take a dump. That's how dumb that dude is. And Hugh Jackson right in there with old Mike Smith. I think his name is Mike Smith. Are you kidding me? All right, let's see what's next. Same old Draymond. This is what I like. Don't apologize. Ever. Never, ever, 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 and a day. So Draymond Green decides to get, he gets a technical. He gets thrown out of a game the other day. Within like 20 minutes of the game, Draymond Green is doing his podcast on the volume. I think it's, um, I think, It is uh, uh, Colin Cowherd's group of podcasters. So Draymond Green is literally right there explaining to you. And then Draymond Green comes out and says this. He's like, look, I'm not changing. Now, my dog ain't changing. I ain't changing. I think it gives a little background noise. But I'm not changing. Draymond Green says, screw this. Ain't changing. You know what? Don't. Don't. He should not be changing. Ever. Now, I would like as a guy that bet on the Warriors to get to the NBA Finals, I would like for him to stay in the game. I would like for him not to get thrown out. I would like for Draymond to go ahead and get him some triple doubles. But I don't need him changing, acquiescing, because who are you acquiescing to? That's what I always say here. Who do you acquiesce to? When you come out and apologize, who, do you, who are you acquiescing to? Who are you apologizing to? What's their value that you have to apologize to them? What do you get out of it? You know what you get out of it? Squadoosh. You get nothing out of it. Now, you're in a relationship. You do something stupid. That dog's going to have to apologize to me after this thing is over. And I'm going to get a damn apology. Yeah, I am. But anyway, long story short, Hey, get over here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Get up here. Get up here. Come here. Come here. 
Come here. Hey, come here. Come here. All right. What a show, huh? If I'm not going to the bathroom, then I got a dog barking. That's why you watch this show. I mean, I could stand there in my little princess pose like Greeny does in front of a screen, or I could be petting a dog uh, between my legs so it doesn't bark and having to go to the bathroom half the time. Which would you rather have? I know which one you'd rather have. You'd rather be right here, baby. Yeah, you would. Anyway, Draymond Green, just like you, Lula, don't apologize. I know my dog's name is Lula, all right? I know. Yeah, well, Lula Mae Bickford is the reason my dog's name is Lula. Lula Mae Bickford was my wife's aunt, great aunt, great, great aunt, something like that. She was a hussy. She was married six times. She was a woman about town. She knew what she liked, and she went at it. That's my dog, Lula Mae Bickford. I don't like dogs, but this is a rescue dog. And somebody once said to me about my dog, well, you know, you think you rescued the dog. Well, that dog rescued you. Yeah, my ass. Yeah, just stop with that. You know, and when I got a dog, everybody on my radio show in Indy knew I didn't like dogs. Isn't that right, YouTube channel? They know I I don't have the dog gene, right? I don't. Like, hey, look, if the dog went and ran away, I always tell Lee, ah, she had a good run, which makes people absolutely crazy. But I don't have the dog gene. I don't have the cilantro gene, and I don't have the dog gene. Sorry. But I'd be good to the dog. I walk the dog every day. I'm petting the dog. You know, these hands underneath there, this isn't Jeffrey Tubin style, by the way. This is me petting a dog. So get that straight right now. Don't confuse the two. <laughs> All right. I'm never going to change the way I play basketball. It's gotten me this far. Got me three championships, four All-Stars, Defensive Player of the Year. I'm not changing now. My reputation is a badge of honor. Not everyone can earn that reputation. That's what I say about me. You and me, Draymond, baby, we're kindred spirits. That's right. That's right. My reputation got me more publicity, notoriety, money than I ever imagined. That's right, Draymond. You don't change. Because who are you changing to? Brian Windhorst? Who cares what the the clowns on TV say? Who cares? You do you, man. It is a badge of honor. Not everyone can have that badge of honor. Again, my left hand is petting a dog. Okay? Don't get any crazy ideas, you CNN watchers. Don't even think it. Uh... (laughs) Never leave New York by your own volition if you are a baseball player. If you are a baseball player, you never leave New York, you never leave Boston. If you are a player, a starter in New York or Boston, never leave. Latest example, Robbie Cano. Robbie Cano was on his way to being one of the great second basemen of all time. Robinson Cano was not good. He was great with the Yankees. He was great. And then he did what a lot of people do, which I got no problem with if that's what you want to do, but I've always said Derek Jeter would have been a great player, but he wouldn't have been Derek Jeter if he was shortstop for the Kansas City Royals, or in this case, the Seattle Mariners. I'm a big fan of Robinson Cano when he was with the Yankees. 
I'm not going to lie about it. I haven't seen Robinson Cano play one time. One time. And haven't cared about him playing one time since he left New York, the Yankees. Not one. So Robinson Cano goes, and now he's 39 years old. And good for Robinson Cano. He's made a lot of money. But yesterday, the Mets had to cut him. The Mets had to cut him one year after he got suspended for the entire year for guess what? PEDs. That's right. So Cano goes out. He's not playing well. He's batting 195, one home run, three RBIs, 501 OPS. And you know what? He's only played in 12 of the 23 games. However, he is owed $44,703,297. A lot of us would fight over the 297. But Robinson Cano is owed this kind of green. He's owned this kind of bread. And they said, adios. Adios. Reason he got cut was Major League Baseball teams had to reduce their roster by two on Monday. So a kid named Jan Lopez went to AAA and Robinson Cano got cut. 44 is what he's owed. Come here. So anyway... So Cano gets cut, but I'm just telling you, this just makes sense. If I were a baseball player, yes, I know he left and went to Seattle for life-changing money. Yes, I know all the clowns will say, well, you got to get yours when you can. I know you got to get yours when you can. Okay, you got to get yours when you can. Okay. All right. It's great. And he's got his. And he's going to have a great life. And, you know, whatever happens to Robinson Cano, it ain't going to be because of money. Whatever happens to Robinson Cano's kids, it ain't going to be because of money. <laughs> Where's that $35 million? Oh, Robbie Cano, I remember when you could have been a contender, Hall of Famer. But, hey, he'll have a great life. <clears throat> he'll have more money than he ever dreamed of. And whatever happens in his life, good or bad, well, maybe good because of the money. But anything happens bad, ain't going to be because of the money. It's going to be because of decisions made with the money. And I hope nothing bad happens. hope he has a great life. All right, the NBA last night. That's right. The NBA is fantastic. We got the Miami Heat, who are playing the 76ers. Now, remember this. The 76ers are playing without Joel Embiid, at least for these first two games. They play again tomorrow. It was almost, I don't know, it was like a continual movement upstream for the 76ers. And actually, in the first half, they were right there. But the second half, as you see. That's what happens. There's a tail of the tape, ladies and gentlemen. 106 to 92. Three-point shooting. Neither team shot the ball very well. Everything basically across the board, fairly even. But the difference was one team just shot the ball into the basket better because they got more shots. There's a thing in basketball. Let's get more shots. Get 13 more shots. You feel pretty good you're going to win the basketball game, and that's what happened last night. They got 13 more shots. One team made nine threes. One team made six threes. Basically everything's even. One team had more blocks, didn't matter. One team had more assists, guess it mattered. I don't know, offensive rebounds killed, killed the 76ers. And oh, by the way, guess what? Joel Embiid's a big guy. Joel Embiid gets you about 15 rebounds a night in the playoffs, in a short series. But at the end of the day, no Joel Embiid. Tyler Hero was terrific. Tyler Hero was high energy. In fact, Remember the name Duncan Robinson? Duncan's a family friend, signed for $90 million. The day after he signed, he was at our house hanging out. 
Duncan didn't even get in the game. Boy, would I love to see Duncan Robinson come to the Pacers. But anyway, Tyler Hero was the reason Duncan didn't get in the game. Tyler Hero was uh, fantastic. He had 25 points. Bam Adebato had 24. And, of course, Bam Adebato now, I mean, think about it. I mean, there's no Joel Embiid. DeAndre Jordan's a good player, but he's old. Uh, James Harden, man. Uh, James Harden, one thing about James Harden over these last couple years, James Harden been exposed. Seriously been exposed. Let's be honest. Uh, There was a long time where we thought James Harden could lead a team to a championship. James Harden, again, I'm going to use the same phrase, couldn't lead blind turkeys to take a dump. Now, blind turkeys will usually take a dump. But if James Harden's leading them, they wouldn't do it. They would be like my dog. They would say, no, uh uh-uh, not doing it, not going there. Uh, You can stop me from barking for a minute, but I'm going to go find that daggone chipmunk that's outside, and I'm going to go bark at it until you let me go outside. That's exactly what's happening in my crib. And I'm just saying, I ain't happy about it, but it is what it is. But James Harden, no. Uh, N-O spells James Harden. I'm sorry, but no. Uh Uh-uh. No. He had 16. He had a couple threes early. His his game just has not translated worth a daggone. It just hasn't. I'm sorry. Get mad, glad, angry, or sad. It hasn't translated. Nothing good's happening with James Harden on the court. All right, let's let's turn our attention. And this is a bad beat. Minus six is what it got to. Dallas, the Mavericks, on the road. Taking on, I only got a couple minutes, and I'll get this dog outside. You're not going to hear one word from 121 to 114. Now, look at this. You rarely see this in the NFL or the NBA, whichever one you want. But you rarely see a team shoot 50% anymore. Why? Because they shoot a lot of threes. I want to show you something. You score, hey, get over here. Come here. Come here. You scored 121 points, did the Suns. Look at how many threes they shot. Only 28. Like, teams are shooting 53s. The Celtics shot 50 the other day. They shot 28 threes. Come here. Come here. Come here. You chose to watch this show. Uh, The Suns shot 28 threes. That's it. 92 attempts. 91 attempts. 28 threes. Let's look on the other side. 39 threes out of 84 attempts. I look at that every time. Now, it is pretty cool that there were 18 of 18 from the free throw line. I wanted to talk about that. You know, I fell asleep during the game. I'm not going to lie. But while I fell asleep during the game, uh, I can't remember because I fell asleep during the game, but did the announcers even try to jinx this? Did they say, hey, look, they're 16 of 16 from the line. And somebody went, oh, man, you can't. I jinxed more teams. And I'm not going to lie to you, I didn't do it intentionally. Because when I was announcing games, I didn't want guys to miss. Because the one thing I used to keep track of in my feeble little brain was points. I wanted to know in high school, how many points did I have? And if anybody asked me in the middle of the game, I'd have told them, yeah, I got 20. I figured the same thing with college kids. How many you got? So I want everybody to score. Scoring makes basketball fun, so I purposely never said it. But anyway... DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker, what a difference Devin Booker makes, right? Doesn't Devin Booker make a difference? Let's see here. My man Brunson, he's not getting the ball nearly enough. It is now going through 30 shots a game, Doncic, 45 for Doncic, which is incredible to me. But having said that, let's look at what's going on here. 
every starter for the Suns is in double figures. Everyone. Cam Johnson, the kid who transferred from Pittsburgh and went to North Carolina, and I remember arguing with two GMs of the NBA, like, you guys are nuts. That's an NBA player. No, you know, he doesn't do this. I go, yeah, okay. Well, he's six foot nine. He can shoot the ball. Oh, he had 17 last night and made three threes. Why aren't I a general manager in the NBA? DeAndre Ayton, I will tell you why, because I thought DeAndre Ayton was a little bit stiff. Thought he'd be a good player. Didn't know he'd be this good. 25 for DeAndre Ayton, 23 for Booker, you know, 19 for Chris Paul. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. It's going to be a tough stretch. I don't know. 45 is a ton. Let's go Luka Doncic, that kind of thing. He also had 12 rebounds, eight assists, but he had five turnovers, and the ball stopped a lot. Now, defense is the problem for the Mavericks. Let's look at their team and tell me who really is a defensive player. Brunson can guard. Doncic can't guard. Powell can guard a little. Bullock can't guard. Finney Smith can guard. Other than that, you really don't have guys that can guard. Bertans, Kleber, Dinwiddie, not so much. Dinwiddie a little bit. That's going to be the problem. If Dallas is going to win, they're going to have to shoot at high velocity, 39 threes in 85 games. And you know what? They're going to have to make a bunch. They didn't do it last night. So they got beat. Uh, I got a monster for you today coming up. Now, I want to explain this to you. Coming up, the top five all-time draft picks in the NFL based somewhat on on value. You're going to disagree with some. But here's what I always say. I can't tell you that anybody was ever better in the NBA than Wilt Chamberlain. But I didn't see Wilt Chamberlain. His numbers are stupid. I didn't see Jim Brown. I didn't see him. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not putting Jim Brown in there. I'm only talking about guys that I saw and where they were drafted with my top five. All right? So my top five, and I'm curious yours. We got a nice crowd today. We got a big old crowd on, uh, on Twitter. We got a nice crowd here on the YouTube chat. We're having a day. My dog is barking. Away we go. What the heck? Who cares? Stay here. I'm going to be right back. But the first thing I'm going to do is I got to unstrap here from this thing in my ear and this microphone, and I got to get this damn dog out of here. Right? I mean, you don't want to hear a dog. Also, John Gordon coming up at 10 o'clock. I am mad about it coming up at 10.30. There's some stuff, hey, look, I'm just mad about. I'm Right now, I'm a little bit peeved at this dog right here. I'm not going to lie about that. D-O-double-G-U-C, got to get out of the house. Now what you're going to hear is there's a sliding glass door right here. After I let her out, you're going to hear a more muffled bark, but she ain't coming in. We'll be right back. Man, I'm fired up. Sack the hell up and don't go anywhere. Don't at me. We'll be right back after this. Hey, welcome back. You're not going to hear that dog. That's why you listen to this show. Telling you. Um, The NFL draft just happened. And we all grade the draft, right? We all say, hey, look, this team, my team, got a great draft. I cannot believe Alec Pierce was still there in the third round. Oh my, oh, I mean, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. Can you believe he was still there? Uh, yeah, I can believe it. I mean, what do I care? I mean, hey. So I started thinking to myself, 
Who are the best all-time draft choices based on production? Now, I want you to think about this. Now, I know everybody has their favorite team. And I know everybody says, well, you know, LT was. All right. Johnny Unitas, great player. Johnny Unitas came out of nowhere. He played in some kind of leagues. He, he, uh, I'm not counting on him. All right. I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about him. Okay? I'm not doing it. Johnny Unitas was great, but I didn't see Johnny Unitas play. I didn't see Jim Brown play. I saw Roger Staubach play some, but I mean, look, let's be honest. I want to go with guys that I saw play when I was a human being. You know, I was a little farm animal running around when I was a kid crapping everywhere. That's what farm animals do. You just go around and crap. That's what I was doing when, you know, when I'm a kid watching Roger Staubach to a degree. So I'm not talking about him. But without further ado, let me give you my top five all time in Danny D world, and then you feel free to add your own. This is based on production and when they were drafted. Number five, out of the University of Pittsburgh in the 1983 draft, the great Dan Marino was the 27th overall pick. It was a draft where a ton of dudes went, man, Jim Kelly, oh, man, Todd Blackledge, Jim Kelly, bunch of dudes. Bunch of dudes went. Danny Marino ends up being the all-time, basically the all-time passer in the history of the NFL. Nine-time Pro Bowler, league MVP. Um, He had basically, at the time of his retirement, every single record. Every record. And there were a ton of guys taken ahead of him. But I'm not comparing him, and that's not what this is. This isn't a comparison of those taken ahead of him. This is kind of a comparison to where would they be taken now and my actual brain of back then not believing they weren't taken earlier. Dan Marino, when he was at Pittsburgh, was incredible. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. To this day, there are two guys that when they throw the football, I think it's really cool. One was before my time, Joe Namath. Of course I remember Joe Namath. However, and not just for trying to put the smooch on Susie Culver at a halftime. No, no, no. I remember Joe Namath and his prediction. I don't really remember that Super Bowl that much. But I do remember Namath. Namath was one and Marino was two. I mean, they were just cool. When they slung it, they slung it fast. Like the word quick release. And I'm going to give you a couple guys that are going to be ahead of Marino. But I got to tell you, uh, nobody in my world, maybe your world, but nobody in my world slung it like Dan Marino did. Dan Marino had every record. Touchdowns, yardage, you name it. Dan Marino did it. Dan Marino got to the Super Bowl his first year, never made it back. I'm sure like everybody else, if you asked him, Dan Marino thought, well, well, this is easy. You put Dan Marino, Don Shula together, and away you go. However, apparently Marino was a bit of a pain in the backside. I'm not sure he was. I'm not sure he wasn't. But I will tell you this. They never got back, and Marino was great. And as a 27th pick in the draft, I knew back then you couldn't do that. I knew back then this was a bad mother. 
I mean, bad. Bad. Um, the next guy, maybe some of you haven't heard of. But if you're like me, and you think, as many of us do, Bear fan or not Bear fan, that the 85 Bears, the defense of the 85 Bears, is the greatest in the history of the NFL. Now, there are other great defenses. I understand that. You know, what's his face? Ray Lewis. Murderous, if you will. See what I did there? Ravens defense. I get it. Great defenses abound. Okay. But for me and many of my ilk, the greatest defense ever was the 1985 Bears. And to that vein, Richard Dent, Richard Dent, number 95, out of Tennessee State, was the 203rd pick in the draft. Richard Dent was a four-time Pro Bowl selection. But let me tell you something. Richard Dent, in winning the Super Bowl in 1984, was the most valuable player on the Bears. The Bears had Walter Payton. Dan Hampton, they had the fridge, Willie Galt is a whiteout, Jim McMahon is the punky QB, they had Mongo, Steve McMichael, hope he's doing better, they had Wilbur Marshall, Mike Singletary, Otis the Rope, they had dudes, they had Gary Fensick in the back, I mean, they had dudes, but the most valuable player on that team wasn't any of those guys, it was number 95, Richard Dent. Now, Richard Dent went into the Hall, Pro Football Hall of Fame. Richard Dent won a Super Bowl with the freaking Bears, and then he won it again with the 49ers. But when he was with the Bears, there is no, like, think of, I don't know, think of the best, most dominating pass rusher on the edge that you have ever seen. That's Richard Dent. I had a chance to meet him one time after a Bulls playoff game. I went up and had dinner with Michael Jordan, which was pretty cool. I didn't have dinner with him. He invited my brother and I to his restaurant. He was having dinner. We sat down, hung out. Richard Dent was there, and he was just cool. He was just so cool. I mean, I'm sitting there, Michael Jordan on my left, and Richard Dent over there, and it was like, whoa. If you threw Walter Payton and Bob Love in there, I could have died right there. They could have put me and put shrimp on my head and eaten off me as a dead man. I mean, it was awesome. But 230th pick in the NFL draft, I'm 203rd pick in the NFL draft, and wasn't good. No, 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 no. He was great. He was, no, he was great. The next guy's best football player I've ever seen. And when I say football player, I mean this. I mean, he threw it for touchdowns, not very often, but when he did his touchdown, he threw it like he was a freaking quarterback. He ran it better than anybody that I have ever seen. Now, there can be debate. Older guys will say Jim Brown. Younger guys will say Barry Sanders. But to me, Walter Payton was and is, to this day, the best football player that I have ever seen. Like, I give Jonathan Taylor of the Colts the highest praise possible because Jonathan Taylor is the closest thing that I have seen to Walter Payton. Jonathan Taylor will knock a rushing lineman on his backside. Jonathan Taylor will catch a ball out of the backfield. Jonathan Taylor doesn't really run out of bounds. You see these guys now, everybody's tiptoeing out of bounds. If you've ever seen highlights of Walter Payton, 
what you see Wally P do, as we affectionately called him, was put his head down, try to get the extra yard, and then this was cool. We all did this in the playground, and it caused a lot of fights. When he was down, he always moved the ball forward. And his thought, and I quote, if I can get an extra yard a game, that's worth it. We used to do that all the damn time. I mean, we did it all the time. Playing on our side yard or playing in our backyard or playing down at the park. Back when kids used to actually play outside. Wally P would, and then move it ahead. And then you'd have to argue like, hey, you were down right here. No, I wasn't. Yeah, you were. No, water paint. You know, everybody. Wally P called us, caused us some angst. But in the 1975 draft, I remember this. He was the fourth pick of the draft. And Wally P is the fourth pick of the draft. You say, well, that's not an overvalued. Walter Payton came out of Jackson State. Now, let me ask you a question. I understand now we might, we might, might understand that Jackson State has good football players. But in 1975, I was like 12 years old. All right? So I'm 12 years old. I rushed to get to Gary Post Tribune, and I can't wait to see who the Bears have picked. I grew up outside Chicago, Maryville, Indiana, and I'm getting the paper. I'll open the paper. I hope it's a guy named Don Hardeman, a fullback. Think about that. A fullback from Houston. They didn't draft Hardeman. I go down the list. They drafted Walter Payton. Who the hell's Walter Payton? What'd they do? I wanted Don Hardeman. Man. I didn't cry. I mean, what the hell? I wasn't like, you know, a modern millennial. But I did. I was upset. I'm like, that, they screwed this up. The, crap. the Bears never know what they're doing. I hate the Bears. I'll never go back to the Bears. All right. Well, anyway, Wally P became the best football player I've ever seen. He didn't score a touchdown in the Super Bowl, and he kind of acted like a little, you know, I didn't like that. And it shows in the 30 for 30. Yes, he deserved to score a touchdown in the Super Bowl. But after all the suffering that he went through with different coaches and bad teams and horrible lines, Walter P., I was glad to see him just in a Super Bowl. I was glad to see him just get to a damn Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl in a route and get a ring. I mean, what are we talking about? Well, Wally P., God bless you. God rest his soul. Wally P. made a mistake. I have a good friend who had the same liver disease Wally P. did. He, Wally P. went to the wrong doctor, but I digress. All right, number two on this list, Joe Montana. Joe Montana, let me make sure I have it because I always get it wrong. Joe Montana was the 82nd pick in the 1979 draft. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I grew up an hour away. Hour away from Notre Dame, hour 15, hour 20, but it's a toll road. You go really fast. I mean, there's no cops on a toll road. But anyway, there's not. I mean, if you go 80-94, then there's going to be cops. But pro tip, when you're in uh, Gary, Indiana, and you get up the top of I-65, and you're going to go to Chicago, never, ever go to Dan Ryan. Don't go 80-94 to the Dan Ryan. Get on a toll road, go 110, next thing you know, Get off on Stony Island. You got to go through. Then you're, boom, downtown. Don't at me. But anyway, number two, 
on the hit parade. Joe Montana, let's be honest, 82nd pick. He played at Notre Dame. He was captain comeback of Notre Dame. Everybody talks about the Cotton Bowl where he was great. But 82nd pick for Joe Montana. But I can see it. Back then, it was like, all right, can you throw it to here? You don't have to throw it way over there. You can. You should. Terry Bradshaw did. Terry Bradshaw would load it up and fire it down to Lynn Swan and John Stallworth. But the West Coast offense of Bill Walsh, bing, 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 throw it to Ronnie Lott and let, let him, not Ronnie Lott, what am I talking about? Roger Craig and let him run. It's a pretty good move. John Taylor, Jerry Rice, it all came together in the 80s. But I can see looking back where Joe Montana was a bit overlooked. I can also see where Joe Montana got lucky. Joe Montana fit in perfectly to the system that Bill Walsh was starting to run with the San Francisco 49ers. But also, Bill Walsh fit Joe Montana in. It was a perfect marriage. And that doesn't happen all the time. Tom Brady and Belichick, perfect marriage. Bill Walsh, uh, Joe Montana, perfect marriage. For a year, until everybody got greedy, Jim McMahon, and Mike Ditka, perfect marriage, and then both wanted to get all the money from over here. They didn't want all the championships right here, Ditka and McMahon. Right here, all of this is no good. Right here, let's get titles, is what Belichick, Brady, Montana, and Walsh did. And with the 82nd pick out of Notre Dame, they knew they were getting a couple things. One, they were getting a guy that was not afraid of the moment in Joe Montana. Remember the famous quote? Game-winning Super Bowl, hey, that's John Candy over there. That's awesome. So they were getting a guy that was never afraid. They were getting a guy that wasn't going to shy from the big moment. And let's be honest, that's a very underrated thing to try to scout. If you're going to play in the NFL, guess what's going to happen to you, particularly now with social media? You're going to have to play in big moments. You're going to have to play in front of a worldwide audience, and even then. So you're going to have to be cool. So guess who was cool? Joe Montana was cool. And Joe Montana, what did he do? He ended up playing in front of big crowds, was cooler than anybody, went himself and won himself some Super Bowls. They added great talent around him. Maybe he made that talent better than it was. I don't know. But I know with the 82nd pick, that dude was a hell of a bargain. Not a little bargain. That dude was an incredible bargain. Think about that now. Think about getting a guy like Joe Montana now. We lose our mind if a guy's a 40-something pick. But, and this is no surprise, in 2000, the, <laughs> the Patriots picked Tom Brady. Now, the Patriots, don't act like you knew. Don't act like you had any idea. You picked Tom Brady 199th. 199th in the NFL draft, the New England Patriots select Tom Brady, Michigan. And you know what? I was in Bowling Green, Ohio at that time. And Bowling Green, Ohio, for those of you that don't know, is literally um, an hour to Detroit. Actually, you cut it off. It's only an hour to to Ann Arbor. So I knew Drew Henson. I knew all these guys, but I'm not going to lie to you. When you're coaching, you don't exactly pay attention 
to other schools that deep. Now I do, right? And in my day, I did. But the truth of the matter is uh, I didn't when Tom Brady was coming out, so it did not register with me that Tom Brady was going to the New England Patriots. What I knew about the New England Patriots, frankly, was that the Bears kicked the crap out of them in the 1985 Super Bowl, and they had Steve Grogan, and they had Tony Eason. But other than that, I didn't pay attention. They had the retread coach. Wasn't that coach the guy that got fired from uh, Cleveland? Now, remember, Cleveland's only a couple hours to the east. Bowling Green actually is in a great place. It's kind of the crossroads of America. The the turnpike meets I-75 right up here. It's really a good spot. Not the greatest weather, but I digress. But let's be honest. So all of a sudden, you draft Tom Brady with 199th pick in the NFL draft. Nobody gave a rats. Nobody cared. Huh. Turned out to be a pretty damn good pick. And let me explain to you why it turned out to be a pretty good pick. As I look down this list, okay, the one thing, the one thing that I see from Brady to Montana to Peyton to Dent to Marino, talent, no question. But you know what I see? An internal crazy mental toughness in every one of those guys. Like Brady, anybody more mentally tough than him? Like Tom Brady was a dude's dude, is a dude's dude. When you see him on those arena shows, what's he doing? He's swearing. He's just talking like a guy. Joe Montana knew who he was. Joe Montana didn't just go out to San Francisco and become a quarterback. No, Joe Montana went to San Francisco, and Brady did the same thing. He married the hottest woman in the world, Janet Jones. Yeah, he did. So did Brady. Wally P. Wally P was a dude's dude. Like, Walter Payton is from Jackson State. Jim McMahon is kind of a Mormon knot that ended up at a Mormon school, defied all. He was a rebel. They became best of friends. McMahon wore a headband. He got fined all the time because a note on his headband would make fun of something. Well, guess who wore a headband too? The greatest star in the NFL, Walter Payton. A dude's dude. Richard Dent. A little bit crazy. A little bit introspective. But again, a dude's dude. Dent, kind of quieter. A ferociousness. McMichael, insane. Mongo, this is the defensive front of Bears. Dan Hampton, completely out of his mind. Big, strong, movie star looks. I mean, he was the guy. I can't remember who was on the other side. Dent was the rusher on one side. I'm having a hard time remember who the fourth guy up front was in the Bears' 46 defense. I do know the linebackers, though. Otis the Rope. I'll let you figure out why he's called Otis the Rope. Mike Singletary. And then Wilbur Marshall, the most athletic linebacker, non-LT division that I ever saw in my life. But they had a weird cast of characters. And Richard Dent fit in with two Southern crazy people in McMichael, who I've gotten to know and is insane, and Mongo, who unfortunately I had gotten to know just a minute, but now is battling ALS. But they all fit together because he was a dude's dude. Dan Marino... Same thing as these other guys, a dude's dude. 
Always rumors about Dan Marino being out with his teammates too late. Rumors coming out of college about his nocturnal habits. Hey, guarantee you Brady's nocturnal habits at Skeeps at Michigan were the same as Montana's at the linebacker at frickin' uh, Notre Dame. Danny Marino dropped because they thought his nocturnal habits. You know what that tells me, his nocturnal habits? It's a dude's dude. I don't need a choir boy. Walter, or excuse me, Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning, after games, had the place at the Slippery Noodle uh, roped off for he and his teammates to go have a bunch of beers and have a good time. A dude's dude. Be a dude's dude. Don't be some stuck-up crazy person. Don't be some insanely uh, arrogant jackass with your teammates. Be a dude's dude. And that's what Tom Brady is. Hey, Tom Brady, if you saw the arena, this is cool. Listen up here. Tom Brady said when he got hurt and all the stuff that he went through, losing when they were undefeated, he said if he ever won a Super Bowl again, he was going to party and enjoy it. Well, I don't know if you saw Tom Brady walking out, what was it, off of a uh, boat in Tampa after throwing the Lombardi trophy to his buddy and everybody lost their mind. Tom Brady was hammered. Tom Brady had one great day in the Bay, in Tampa, celebrating another Super Bowl. That's what I'm all about. And everybody's there taking their little pictures and and their mommies and daddies who are sanctimonious saying, well, I cannot believe that Tom Brady got drunk. Really? Your husband just fell down the stairs, but you can't believe Tom Brady? (laughs) Being a dude's dude is awesome. Yeah. Well, that's sexist. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I can't hear misogynist. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) I don't know. But all five of these guys. Now, drafted at different times, Wally P was fourth. I mean, that's not. I don't know what that is. You can add to your own list if you like. But in my opinion, these are the four best, five best. Like, again, I don't know who was taken around Jim Brown. Jim Brown, everybody that is older than me, tells me not only was he the greatest football player of all time, but he was the best lacrosse player of all time. And in fact, Jim Brown and a bunch of dudes, Ernie Davis started it, but that wore number 42 at Syracuse. The number 42 is retired, but it's used. Let me explain. The number 42 at Syracuse is like sacred. If you wear number 42 on any team at Syracuse, that's something. That's a badge of honor. It was actually the same thing at Indiana when I went there. The number 42 was big time. Scotty May wore it. Mike Woodson wore it. When I went to Indiana, nobody had the number 42. They gave it to a guy named John Flowers, and I was pissed. I wanted to wear the number 42. They gave me the number 11. The only other number 11 was Isaiah, so I thought that was pretty cool. But uh -uh. I wanted number 42. 42 at Syracuse, man. So that's the impact that Ernie Davis and Jim Brown, Floyd Little, they all had at Syracuse, and that's pretty cool. But I didn't see him. I didn't see Johnny Unitas. When I was a kid, Johnny Unitas was an old man wearing high tops and a flat top. My hair was long, my hair was feathered, and it was freaking glorious. It was. Don't laugh. Um, So there you go. We're going to have a... uh, 
top five for Tuesday, every Tuesday. And we're going to have a what the hell Wednesday tomorrow. So if you have any what the hells, if you've seen something that is just incredibly stupid and you want to send it to me, we will use it as a what the hell Wednesday. Last week, we had a guy that married a hologram. I'm going to ask John Gordon about that. There's some weird things in this world. Now, see, John Gordon, who's coming up, is our favorite author. John Gordon has impacted so many people, but I like John Gordon's story better. I think John Gordon's story is cool. I think John Gordon's story is really cool. So we're going to talk to John Gordon coming up here uh, in a couple of minutes. So stay right with us. And, hey, look, and here's the other thing. Don't at me about this. I didn't even know, yes, I did, but I didn't have him on because of this. I didn't know John Gordon was promoting a, well, isn't promoting a book. I didn't know he had a book, a new book out. But I'm glad he does because I wanted John Gordon on because every Sunday, this is a true story, every Sunday I asked my wife, the lovely Lee Ross Shaw Dockage, I put her, made, I put her first married name in there because I'm cool like that. But every Sunday I asked my wife, hey, who should I have on this week? And every Sunday, she says, John Gordon. And every Sunday, I go, yeah. Finally, this Sunday, I was smart enough to say, hey, John, can you come on the show? And he's coming on the show. Uh, we're going to talk to John Gordon when we come back. Stay right here. Tell your friends. But also, send me a what the hell Wednesday because, frankly, about 8 o'clock, I'm ready to go to sleep. They send me to homework for the next day's show, and I'm tired. I'm old. Look at this head. We'll be right back. The best author in the country, John Gordon, next. That's it. I got to take a break. We'll be right back with more on Don't At Me across the Outkick Network. Yeah, you know, I, I said it before we went to break. Every Sunday, I asked Lee, um, who should we have on? And, you know... Always John Gordon's name comes up every single Sunday. Like she said, Charles Barkley, so I called Charles. He came on, Pat McAfee. Uh, people have been very nice, but Lee is basically the content director, and we're very honored and thrilled to have what I think is the nation's number one author, John Gordon, join us. Hey, uh, you went for a run earlier. You're 51 years old. How far is a guy 51 years old in the, in the Florida heat run on a nice Tuesday morning? That's a great question, Dan. It's actually a walk run. You know, I don't want to run the whole way. So I will walk, then run, walk, then run. So a total about four miles total, get back. And I always finish, you know, sprinting towards, towards the end. I learned that from Dabo Sweeney. I went for a run with him during training camp. And we ran like, I thought it was going to be like just a mile. He goes, you want to go for a jog? We wind up running five miles. And then he sprints the last 200 yards. So I'm having a sprint with him 200 yards, but I've done it ever since. Let me ask you, there's got to be some kind of weird coach philosophy among, on the 200 yards at the end. What, what's the philosophy there? I think it's about just finishing strong, right? In a game, you're going to finish strong. When he comes down that hill, you know, when Clemson's playing the, before the game, he's sprinting, right? People think it's about himself. No, he's just saying, hey, we're going to finish. This is how I do things. This is how we do things. And I think it sets the tone as a leader, right? You lead by example and how you lead will inspire others to follow. John, I want to get into a couple of things. Your life and my life uh, actually have a weird irony today. You went to Cornell. You played lacrosse at Cornell. My wife is actually on her way to Cornell. 
as the crim of Harvard, where my daughter, stepdaughter plays, are taking out, what, what is Cornell, Big Red? Is it the Big Red? It's the Big Red. Yeah. Um, I want to get into a couple of things. You, at one point, you've talked about this. Um, you were not a writer, correct? Or you were not an author. You basically lost your job, went broke, and had to figure it out, correct? That is correct. And by the way, congratulations to your stepdaughter. That's awesome that she's playing uh, lacrosse, that, that she's, you know, yeah. embarking on that. That's that's incredible to play for, for Harvard. Look out. That's amazing. But I want to say, yeah, my journey began when I was really negative, miserable, lost my job during the dot-com crash. Before that, I was a bar owner in Buckhead, actually opened up a bar in Buckhead at the age of, of 24. And so I had that place, started a nonprofit, went to law school, dropped out after a year and a half, realized it wasn't for me. Went to go work in the dot-com world thinking I was going to make my fortune. Lost my job during the dot-com crash. Everything came crumbling down. Wife almost left me because I was so miserable. I'm blaming her for why my life was so bad. And she had enough. So she gave me this ultimatum and said, you know, if you don't change, we're over. And I knew I needed to change. So that began this journey of working to become a more positive person. And then I figured out, hey, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to help other people get through their challenges the way I you know, was able to get through mine. I actually started a newsletter at the time, five subscribers, my mother, my brother, my best friend from college, you know, I'm sending <laughs> that newsletter out. And eventually people started reading it. And that's what led me to write these books. I didn't wake up one day saying, you know, I'm going to be an author, but I did ask what I was born to do. And I remember in that asking, like, what, why am I here? What is my purpose? That is when writing and speaking became very clear to me. What did you have to change? Well, I had to change me, right? We often want to change uh, the outside world, but you have to change yourself. We create from the inside out, not the outside in. Great teams, great sports, right? Great leaders. Every great team leads from the inside out. They don't allow the expectations, the noise, the behaviors of others to affect who they are and what they do, right? So I had to stop blaming everyone else. The first rule of the energy bus, my most popular book is, you're the driver of your bus. You have to choose the kind of ride it's gonna be. So I had to change my attitude. I had to stop blaming and complaining. I had to start feeding myself every day with, with positivity, because I'm not naturally positive, right? I grew up in Long Island, New York, in a Jewish Italian family, a lot of food, a lot of guilt. My dad was a New York City police officer, <laughs> undercover narcotics. You know, my dad was battling the drug cartels in the streets of New York, right? He was not a very positive person, right? A loving man, my dad, but, you know, but but a fighter, a tough guy. That's what, who I grew up with. So I had to learn, right, how to cultivate this positivity, to feed myself in order to feed others. And I started to take a walk of gratitude over 17 years ago. And I would walk every day and just practice gratitude. And I literally can tell I rewired my brain from negative to positive over the years doing this kind of exercise. What, was there a moment where you felt the change? I wouldn't say it was a moment. My wife noticed the change because I became more positive. I stopped allowing all the outside circumstances affect me. I was no longer as, you know, as, um, you know, as angry. And again, I wasn't like angry in an abusive way. I would just get angry and frustrated and, you know, and always depressed and down. And uh, she honestly wanted me to go on medication. But I said, let, let me see if I could do this myself. Let me see if I could just, you know, find a way and actually start having good habits, sleeping, eating right. I started to eat more salmon, which is actually really beneficial. The research shows it helps with depression. I started to take these walks. So yes, I would say like maybe after, maybe after a few months, I noticed a difference. 
after a year, big difference, five years, you know, major difference. I wrote the energy bus in 2006, 2007. And then it's funny, I wrote about this guy who was negative and miserable, who wanted to be more positive. And a bus driver changes his life, changes his life to help him become more positive. That was really my journey of struggling to be more positive. But I would say around that time, I was starting to master it, but it still took a number of years to actually grow. And I'm still growing, right? There's still days that we struggle. There's still days that adversity hits and challenges come our way, right? I have a 24-year-old, a 22-year-old who's on the five-year plan at college, right? We've got to stay positive. Is it, is it a hard thing to live up to all the time? Like when people see you or they hear your name or they read your books, oh man, that dude is really positive. That dude is, is that a, is that a difficult thing to constantly have to be that guy? Well, what's difficult is the misconception that I am that guy, because if you come to my talks <laughs> right. and I'm very honest and clear and in the books that I am not naturally positive. So like you, I am working at it. I don't pretend to be Pollyanna. I'm not Joel Osteen. You know, I'm not like just Mr. Positive all the time. You know, I can't, I cannot be naturally that way. So I am the best version of myself working to be more positive. So I tell people that. So, but, but I do take responsibility for the expectation of being the best version of myself and overcoming adversity and negativity and not having outbursts and really trying to be someone who models this and leads this way. I really am living, I have to live up to the books. I've written 26 books now, right? I have to live up to the messages right. I share in the books. Right. And, and, and it's made me though become a better version because I've got to walk that walk, right? So it's almost like in my life, I've written these books, then I'm becoming the person that I wrote about. And I can see over time how I keep growing and keep getting better. But am I perfect? No. Do I have flaws? Yes. And if, if we start debating about something or if we're playing in sports, you know, I'm trying to beat you. That's just the way I am. Yeah, like, hey, look, hey, I saw John Gordon at the supermarket. Now, he was asking the cashier about his bill. He's not that positive. He should just accept that bill and just move along. I, you, know, you know what I mean? I, I mean, hey, that's a bird. I mean, it's... It, I think it's interesting because I, I'm not nearly at the level that you are, but I'm very cognizant of anything. If I go to the grocery store, like I, I walk in and I, I'm going to be Mr. Happy because I don't want anybody, like I know that I'm an easy target, so it's easy to say, well, I saw Dockage, you know, whatever. But you are Mr. Positive, so you are that target, period. And Dan, funny story about that. So, so years ago, my daughter was playing lacrosse, right? And as a parent, when they would make bad calls, the ref, the refs would make bad calls. I would get fired up, right? And so the pants were like, he wrote the energy bus, you know, like this guy wrote the energy bus. I said, no, it's not John. That's that's Joey Bag of Donuts. And so I had an I had an alter ego, <laughs> Joey Bag of Donuts, that would come to the game. But then I got nominated to be on the board of uh, the Positive Coaching Alliance. And so once I became a member of the board of the coaching alliance, positive coaching alliance. I'm like, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore, right? I gotta, I gotta be good. And, and so I go to the games and I would just sit there and watch. And the parents were like, "Where's Joey?" I was like, "Joey is dead. He's not allowed to come here anymore." And we had a really great time with the parents because you know they knew I cared about my daughter and and loved her and wanted the best for her, right? So I would get fired up. But you know, over time, 
you know, like I'm not that guy anymore and I am getting better and I have improved dramatically. And just like you, when I'm in the grocery store, when I'm dealing with people, I don't do it for because people, what people might think, I honestly do it because I, I want to be that person. Like, I want to be more loving. I want to be more kind. I want to be more giving. I don't want to allow someone's negativity to bring me down, right? I want to lift them up. But on, on social media or when you get some of those evil comments and they jump off the page, right? You can sense the evil that's literally written. You can feel it when you read that tweet. Someone will try to challenge you when you come back at them, when they're, they're being negative at you and really mean but you just challenge them. They're like, oh, why are, you, why are you being so negative? I thought you were Mr. Positive. No, I am positive, but I'm not going to be a doormat either, right? So, I mean, I am a follower of Jesus, but I am not Jesus and I strive to be more like him, but that's, you know, I'm not perfect like that. What's the best advice you've ever gotten as you were starting your journey? Did you get, a, did you get any advice from somebody that really stuck with you? There's been such great advice along the way, but for instance, as a speaker, I called up a speaker, Ed Foreman, actually, years ago, and I was just getting started. And I said, I want to be a speaker like you. What should I do? And he just said, speak. He said, speak. The more you do it, the better you will get. Just go do it and share the message. And the more you're out there, more people will refer you, you know, if you're good. And so I did 80 free talks when I got started just to, to share the message. And then along the way, I learned my own advice. Like when I'm writing, I don't write for you know, the outside world, I, I literally write it first, you know, the first draft to just from within, right, to try to make a difference, trying to make an impact. And it's not trying to be perfect. I just write and I love the reader. And I love the process of writing when you love the process, this goes for sports as, as well, you will love what the process produces. So just love the process. And I, the more I've done that along the way, that's had a huge impact. But the best advice I've ever heard is from Dr. James Gills, only person on the planet to complete six double Ironman triathlons. That's six, and that's a double Ironman. Last time he did it, he was 59 years old, and he was asked how he did it. He said this, I've learned to talk to myself instead of listen to myself. And I think that's the best advice, because when you listen, you hear all the fear, the negativity, the doubt. But when you talk to yourself, you can feed yourself with the words and the encouragement that you need to keep on moving forward. I've done this a lot over my life, and I really believe it's one of the reasons why I've been able to overcome a lot of the adversity I've faced. What is the energy bus? What does that book mean to you? Oh, it means everything. I mean, it's the book that put me on the map. I wrote it in three and a half weeks. It was rejected by over 30 publishers. I was told to give up, but you know, I had the grit being a college athlete, right? You know, I had the grit. I knew about just continuing to work, believe, have a vision and mission. And that's what kept me going to finally see that book, you know, become a bestseller after five years, five long years. And, getting the message out there. It's really a testament to, to the work that I do right in my life. And it's about positivity, overcoming negativity, not allowing energy vampires to sabotage you and bring you down. And so, yeah, for me, uh, you know, that book is everything. It's gone on to sell probably 3 million copies now. And it really has paved the way for me to go do the work I do, work with all the sports teams and the companies I get to work with. And it's all because of, of the energy bus. So I'm just really thankful that I got I got to write this book, but more thankful. Like I got an email the other day, Dan, from a guy who read the book and said he was going to commit suicide and decided not to after reading this book. And for me, that's what it's all about. If I just impacted that one life, man, that is everything. Well, you mentioned at the start of this that the energy bus was kind of about you. Um, but was it about others as well? Was there an element of there that was 
you know, somebody that wasn't a vampire, somebody that was an energy giver as opposed to an energy taker? Was there somebody that you used from the other side? Yeah, Joy the bus driver is that positive force, right? She's the life changer. She's the wise sage, and she is impacting her passengers. So, yeah, that was based on women I've met over the years that were inspiring and had incredible wisdom and life and joy, right? And you've met these women, they just give you a big old hug. So that was based on that. It was based on, you know, women I met in the airport that were just loving and kind traveling through and how they would impact your day with a kind word and a, and a smile, right? And so it was based on that. The characters on the bus that George meets along the way that give him advice, you know, were based on CEOs that I got a chance to to meet along the way or, you know, business leaders. And some of the other characters were like, you know, the smart, you know, the, the wise guy who was always doing the Google research to provide the stats and the facts. And so that was based on, you know, your friend who's the know-it-all, right? And so it's always based on different characters in your life. How much have coaches meant to you personally, coaches that you've had in your life, whether it's at Cornell, high school, wherever? Well, my coach, Richie Moran, just passed away last week at the age of 85. And he meant, you know, everything to me. He recruited me when I was 18 years old, well, actually 17, right? Out of Smithtown High School in Long Island, right? Smithtown East. And he was the only coach to recruit me for lacrosse. Everybody else, it was football. So he recruits me for lacrosse. I go there and that experience changed my life. Like I would not be who I am today if it wasn't for Cornell and Richie and the kind of coach that he was and the impact he had on me. But it wasn't just those four years. What made him so amazing, and I just wrote about this, what made him so special was that he was your coach forever. It wasn't just the four years you were there. He was your friend and your coach forever. A few years ago, right before COVID, I was speaking in Marco Island and he came to see me speak. He's probably 82 years old at the time, 81, 82. I'm in my late forties and here he is coming to see me speak. You know, there's my coach and I'm on stage and I got a chance to honor him and call him out to the crowd. And, you know, he stood up and everyone clapped for him. And it was really special because that's how much he meant to me, but he was like this for everyone. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Cornell lacrosse players. He was always involved in their lives. And we all have these amazing stories about how he showed up at a, at a practice where we were at when we were coaching or at a family event or when I was waiting tables at Hands right after college, he showed up and told my manager he worked for the FBI and he needed to talk to John Gordon. I come up to the front thinking I'm in big trouble. And there's my coach there laughing hysterical because he was a big practical jokester. And he would, as freshmen, we would show up and uh, to, to campus and come to the locker room for the first time. And he'd be like, hey, kid, go get a bucket of steam from the equipment room, a bucket of steam. And we'd go down to the equipment room. I need a bucket of steam. And they would just start laughing because those are the jokes that he told. So <laughs> legendary coach, but amazing how he was involved in your life. And coaches, one coach, Billy Graham said, will impact your life you know, more in a year, will impact more lives in a year, actually, than most people do in a lifetime. And that was my coach. When you first, first time, do you remember the first time you stood up in front of a team and talked as an author? Yes, it was the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Jack Del Rio read the energy bus. Mike Smith gave it to him. Mike Smith was the defensive coordinator. He read it because Mike Ryan was the athletic trainer who gave it to Mike Smith. Mike Smith gives it to Jack. Jack reads it calls me out of the blue. I'm 35, 36 years old. 
right? And Jack Del Rio is meeting with me in his office. He's an imposing man. I'm an unknown author. No one knows who I am. I just wrote this book that just came to me, right? And I write this book. It comes out. And he said, hey, I really like this book. You know, these energy vampires, they're always trying to bring me down. And I've learned that I have to be more positive than the negativity that I face. And I was like, wow, something I wrote actually, you know, impacted him. That's amazing. He's like, vampires. And so he said, I'm going to have you speak to the team. I said, thank you. I said, you got it. He said, will you do it? I said, yes, but I want everyone to read the book and I'll speak. I don't know why I said, I was just bold. He said, you got it. Bought a copy for every player, every coach, the equipment manager. He bought, he bought it for the custodial staff, the food service people. He wanted everyone to get on the bus. And that was the year that the Jaguars beat the Steelers and made it to the, you know, to the conference finals against uh, the new England Patriots in new England. So they had a great season and it was really cool because, you know, everyone got on the bus and then Mike Smith becomes the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. And then he brings the energy bus with him and he invites me to speak. And it all started because of that. I was really nervous, obviously walking in that, you know, in that, in that um, meeting room, right? All those guys are there. Fred Taylor's there. Maurice Jones Jew is like a rookie. That's how long it was, long ago it was. And I'm walking, I'm like, I cannot believe like I'm in an NFL room right now. But all of a sudden, like it just kicked in, like, all right, you know, share the message that they need to hear and make them better. Let's go. And all of a sudden, I, like this fear went away and I just focused on this message, got fired up. And ever since I've been speaking at teams, you know, like crazy, it was wild. I didn't even know I could do it. And there was a lot of fear, but I just moved forward and then just did it. Yeah, the NFL, man, that's um, what, well, let me ask you, when you walk into and you mentioned Dabo Sweeney, but uh, you've, you've talked to schools, you know, whether it's Clemson as a national school or a Division II school. You've talked to a variety of different. What's the biggest difference you've seen, let's just say, from an NFL team to a college team? Well, we could also talk about NBA and, and college basketball, right? You walk in there to an NBA locker room yeah. or an NBA meeting, and they're like this, right? They're just looking at you. There's only 12 to 15 guys. I spoke to the Miami Heat and Pat Riley is sitting right there in my talk. Talk about intimidating. Pat Riley's sitting right there. You better say something that can make a difference and make an impact. And we had a great conversation afterwards. I'll never forget. But, you know, the difference is, you know, less and less, I believe. I believe I'm seeing more and more with pro teams. They are being more and more receptive to these kind of messages because they've experienced it in college now longer, right? More and more teams are bringing in speakers. So I think they're more receptive to it, but they're older, right? They're wiser. They've heard a lot of things. I think the younger teams, you know, maybe they're just a little bit more open to what you have to say. They are a little bit uh, more excited. They haven't made it yet. So it's a different mindset, but those pros, if you can make them better and you could say something that will help them, they want to hear it. So you just better bring something that's going to make them better. But we have a little bit of a difference, but you know what? I love speaking to all teams. I spoke to a division three lacrosse team the other day via zoom and had a ball doing that with, with them. And I've been, I've been loving teaching lately, you know, how to have a high state of mind versus a low state of mind and how to perform at a higher level. It's like sort of a next level teaching in terms of mindset. It's not the standard. Oh, just be positive. This is like how we overcome the negative thoughts that we have how we overcome the fear. I've been doing a, a lot of that lately. I've been loving sharing that. Well, let me ask you, how do we do that? What is a message? That's a, that's a long, that's a long, that's a long uh, process, but it's about 15 <laughs> minutes to share, but, but I'll tell you right now quickly. It, the simplest, 
greatest performance tool. The simplest, greatest performance tool. It is so simple that we forget it. It is to love it. It is to go love playing, love competing, love the moment, right? Love the process. The minute you focus on loving playing, loving competing, and just loving doing what you do, and you don't allow fear to set in, love casts out fear. So love will actually cause the fear to dissipate because you're loving the moment, loving playing. You're not worried about the outcome. You're not worried about your performance. You're not worried about the score. You just show up and love playing. I'm convinced Michael Jordan, everyone talks about Michael Jordan, how he feared failure and that's what made him great. No, he loved competing. Love is more powerful than fear. So that's what makes us great. Fear will never make us great. It's part of the equation. It's part, but he loved competing. Let's see if you could stop me. Mano a mano, right? He took it personal. He loved competing and loved beating you. So it was the love that drove him to be great and love will drive you to be great. And that is actually the best mental toughness strategy there is, is to love it and you won't fear it. John, I want to go back to you for a second. You know, we all, when we, and you mentioned hitting rock bottom, your wife was going to leave you. The job went south. You're sitting there going, hey, look, if I don't change. So, I feel like human nature is we all want to reach out when we're in those situations in life. We all find, you know, I guess the, the phrase is we all find Jesus, right? Whatever Jesus is, we find. But now you're John freaking Gordon, man. You're, you're like, hey, if you write it, they'll read it. And I want to get into your new book here in a minute. So how do you, do you put, how, how do you manage yourself given your international notoriety because we all want we all want an answer when we're at rock bottom, man. I believe that you have to stay humble and hungry and never think you've arrived at the door of greatness. There's so much more I want to do. There's so much more I want to create. My book Training Camp, I want to make that into a movie, right? I want to get better at speaking, right? I've been doing it for 18 years, but I want to continue to improve. I still get nervous before talks. When I write a book, I have to overcome the fear, right? That it's going to be a piece of junk and people are going to think my, my best work is behind me, right? Just like an NBA player, when you have success, people think that the more success you have, the less fear of failure you have. You actually have more because you have more to lose. So you have to be actually mentally stronger. You have to learn how to overcome. So for me, what I'm passionate about now is sharing like new ideas, new concepts, new things of, of what I'm doing and how I'm doing. You know, we just had our positive summit, right? Damian Lillard was on the summit, right? It was free, right? He did a free talk because he wanted to make a difference. So having him involved and in doing things like that with, with amazing athletes like him are incredible. I talked to Dak Prescott the other day, sharing some of these ideas, right? And so that always just energizes me. So for me, you know, it's a path forward to do what you love to do and just making a difference is what drives me, right? But also I struggle like everyone. So what do I have to do every day when I'm struggling, right? I got to surrender. I got to trust. And yes, I do pray because I know deep down I am not strong enough. And that's what carried me in the past and will carry me now. And, you know, you know, a daughter, for instance, my daughter's and her and her boyfriend, they broke up, turned out to be not a great guy. So they break up and, and now she's struggling. So as a parent, you worry about your daughter and, and really being there for her. And, you know, it's scary, you know, how, how's she going to do? How's she going to overcome? You have your son who's in school and he's struggling at times. How do you help him? So for me, there's always challenges. You know, relationships, right? I wrote Relationship Grit with my wife. You know, that's our ups and downs that we had along the way. Got to continue improving your relationship. 
And, you know, who do you fight most with? Most likely your spouse, right? Dan, I know you and your wife probably have some fights sometimes, right? And so it's just part of the journey. And you've got to continually grow together instead of apart. How often are you asked for advice by email? I mean, I, I see you as a guy that's, all right, I could be right or wrong, but I see you as a guy that's very approachable, very willing to discuss, which means that, you know, one of the sayings in life is, Kindness can be misconstrued as weakness. You know what I mean? Like, how often are you approached, hey, John, I got this problem. Can you talk me through this? Is this like every minute of every day, every email of every day? It's often. I mean, it's often. And it's something that is just part of my life. Like, there's no separation between my, my work and my life. There really isn't. It's just what I do. It's who I am. When we're out on a vacation as a family, we'll meet someone. And next thing you know, we're trying to, you know, figure out ways to, to, to help that person and what they're going through. I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of DMs of, of um, you know, of requests and, and challenges. And so, you know, if I can help them in that moment, I will. If they can get on a, a, a like a web, a free webinar I'm doing, I encourage that. I might send them a video that they can listen to and watch that. And sometimes it's like, hey, the answer to that, I'm not trying to be self-promotional, is but you know, you need to read my book. And I'm not trying to be like, it's not, I'm not trying to make money. Go to the library and read right. the book. But but I wrote the book because this is the question that a lot of people have, but you don't want to take time to read the book and grow yourself. You know, you just want it hand fed. And so a lot of times I encourage people like you have to go be part of your own personal growth process. But man, when someone's struggling the other day I was back in my old high school speaking and an old classmate of mine has a son who is really struggling uh, with depression, anxiety, and he's 16. And I went and I just, you know, I said, we got to go see him. I just knew I had to go see him. And we went and sat down. I spent an hour with him. Man, it was awesome. Like I saw the shift in his mindset. I taught him the high state of mind, low state of mind framework. He got it immediately. And it, it changed. It just changed everything. Like, here's a question I asked, Dan. Do your negative thoughts come from you? And people all the time say, yeah, of course, they're in my head. Here's the next question. If you believe your negative thoughts come from you, who would ever choose to have a negative thought? Would you ever choose a negative thought? I wouldn't. And this helps people understand that negative thoughts are always coming in. And just because you have a negative thought doesn't mean you have to believe it. So these kids and teenagers who are having all this anxiety, fear, and doubt, when you help them understand that they're not choosing the negative thoughts initially, but they can choose how they respond to them, that changes everything for them. And it changed a lot for this kid because he was blaming himself, beating himself up, thinking something was wrong with him. I said, no, every great athlete in the world has negative thoughts come in especially in, in peak moments. You don't have it today. You're not going to play well. Who would choose that, right? So consciousness, thoughts are always coming in and they will sabotage you if you let them. So once you understand this, it is so powerful to be able to overcome in that moment. Anyway, walked away from that kid knowing, you know what, might've saved his life, you know, because he was in a really dark place. And to see the shift, that's what it's all about. So yeah, anyone who has a challenge like that, I will be there in any moment because that's what I am called to do. Trust is a big deal right now, whether it's political, whether, you know, trust in marriages, trust is a big deal. Your new book, The Sale, addresses that, does it not? It does. It's all about integrity and it's all about being honest. And it's, it's all about saying what you're going to do and doing what you say. And, you know, politically, you know, I, I try not to get into politics, but I just want leaders who 
who are honest. I want leaders who tell the truth. I want what what a concept, right? right. I, I want leaders <laughs> who are actually looking looking out for you know our best interest. I, I want a government, and I want a you know I want a society that says here's what we're going to do, and here's why we're doing it. And if we're wrong, we're going to admit uh, we're wrong. We're not going to gaslight you, you know, in the process later on. So for me, you know, I've never been about politics. I'm about principle. And so for me, this book, The Sale, it's not a political book. It's actually for leaders. And it's just about integrity. And it's about doing the right thing. And it's about not taking the, the, the shortcut to success. It's about, yeah, you can have short-term success, right? But you will lose in the end. And you do things the right way over time. More often than not, you'll have success. But also, you'll be able to sleep well at night and feel really good about yourself. And we know in sports, there's a lot of cheating going on. There's a lot of things that are done the wrong way. But I really admire you know, leaders who do things the, the right way. And for me, that's what it's all about. Like, yeah, I could cheat and have short-term success. And yes, I may make more money cheating, right? And no one will ever know, but I'll know, I'll know. And there's a part of your soul that when you're not being truthful and you're lying, there's a part of your soul that actually is affected and I believe is sabotaged when you do that. And I believe when you do the right thing over time, you nourish your soul, you nourish your peace, you nourish your joy. So you sleep really well at night. So the sale is all about, Let's do the right thing. And those who do, believe it or not, they build more trust. And when you build more trust, you actually create more success. So there is truth to that. And if you see people who develop great relationships and are honest, those coaches, those leaders build amazing success over time. We see the ones that don't do it, but there's many that do it right. You think, where do you think, let's talk about sports for a second, John, because you're heavily involved, whether it's speaking or just friendships. Where do you think NCAA collegiate basketball football is headed? Where, what do you think of it? Wow. You know, talking to Jay Billis about this and, and others with Neil, I mean, a lot of the coaches I've talked to recently believe it's like the Wild West and there are no really rules. And if there are rules, no one really knows the rules. So they said that's a challenge. Like no one really yeah, understands right. the rules. It is a really crazy time, right? So uh, I don't know where we're headed. I do know that we can't go back now. And so I believe if we do it the right way, we give athletes the opportunity to make money off their likeness, which they deserve, and they should make money off their likeness. And we find ways to do it the right way and establish some standards and ground rules that allow everything to be understood and everyone could actually... Uh, do it in the appropriate manner and allow these kids to have some money, allow them have to have success. And yes, you know, for kids to be struggling at school and not have money for this and that while they're playing basketball and making millions of dollars for the university, you know, I don't agree with that. But if a kid could actually have the opportunity to make money while they're at school and be an athlete, yes, we should support them and they should get paid in some capacity. You talk to more coaches than I do, and it seems to me the right way is not easily defined right now, right? I mean, the right way used to be very easily defined. Now it's not so easy, I think. Yeah. The good news is at least now there's a way to do it <laughs> under the guise of doing it the right way in the past, right? Right, Everyone right. was doing it. They were still doing it, but it was considered the wrong way, right? And so now at least we can find ways to go within the rules, but we've got to define the rules and we've got to define the standards and we've got to let everyone know this is the, you know, the playing ground. And this is how you could see can, can succeed in this, in this playground. I do believe it gives teams unfair advantages. If you have a fortune, right. If you have a ton of money and it's going to be interesting to see how like 
if I was a coach, yeah, I would line up my boosters, right? My big boosters and every booster of every major company would now sponsor, you know, this athlete, that athlete and that athlete, right? That's what you would do. So in, in areas where you have a lot of successful boosters and a lot of wealth, I believe it's going to give those teams, you know, advantages, but here's the deal more than ever. Now it means culture is important. It means leadership is important. It means teamwork is important now more than ever, where there's the individual that could actually profit and thrive. How do we make sure that we stay as a team when we're just 18, 19, 20 year olds? So I believe it's going to showcase the great leaders, the great cultures, and the great programs more who do things the right way within the rules when we define those rules. I imagine a lot of coaches have reached out to you for advice on just that right there. Well, not really on nil, but we talk about everything I talk about when I talk about leadership and culture all goes to yeah. that because they all want to build you know, a great culture within the framework of, of what they can and cannot do. And so once you build the great culture, like I, you know, Mario Cristobal speaking at, you know, Oregon, right. He is going to build a great culture in Miami. There's no doubt about that. So he's going to build a great program. You just know it. I saw in Oregon. I'm going to see it here. PJ Fleck went up to Minnesota. He builds an unbelievable culture, right? So incredible how he does it. And he's going to continue building a great culture. So when I go places like that, we're always talking culture. And I think that helps them with any kind of um, any framework that Neil is, uh, is proposing. John, I've kept you too long, man. I appreciate your time. I'll let you take a shower. I know you had the big run today in the heat. And, <laughs> you know, hey, you get 50, man. You, it, when you're when you're 10 or 20, you sweat and it's over. When you get our age, man, you sweat and you can't stop. You know? <laughs> no, it's because I'm in Florida, Dan. I'm in Florida. <laughs> and I, I already showered, which is the I already showered, which is the scary thing. <laughs> I always say whenever my wife and I go to Florida, I'm a big shower. She's like, oh, this will be a three shower day for you. I'm like, yeah, probably. <laughs> but hey, John, it's thank true, you, man. Is. Love the books, love your energy. Go ahead. Uh, it is thanks, Dan. It is a, a three shower day. That's funny. I've never heard that before, but that's true. Some days it's it's always a two shower day in the summer, but it could be a three shower day. I love that. And thanks, Dan. I appreciate you having me on. It was uh, yeah. it was so great talking to you. Oh, it's a blast. Uh, that's John Gordon. The sale is available right now, and I'm telling you, if John, if John writes it, we read it. I mean, that's as simple as I can give it to you, and it's always really good stuff. So. Thanks to John, and thanks to my wife, Lee, for saying every Sunday, get John Gordon now. What are you doing? Now she's got to come up with someone else, and I hopefully she will. She's pretty smart. She's on her way to uh, Ithaca. Big, big freaking softball game. If the Crim can get two or three over the Big Red, they go to the Ivy League final. That's right, against Princeton. Uh, we're going to come back. I've got a couple of things. I don't think this is the absolute most positive thing. But it kind of is. I am mad about it. That's right. I am mad about it when we come back. Oh, by the way, I got to go find my dog. We'll be right back. Got to take a short break here. We are rolling with Don't At Me, and you don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Hey, welcome. That was a blast. Uh, the new book is The Sale. John Gordon's book is fantastic, and I don't know why you wouldn't. Uh, I don't know why you wouldn't go out and get it, but uh, hey, our friends on the YouTube chat, 
What do they got going here? Oh, man, they're talking about some deep stuff on here. Man, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I love Dan's dog. Show us Lulu. That's what makes this show reality-based. Yeah, it is. Lulu's over there. She's sitting there having a nap. She went outside, and uh, but she came back in, man. Uh, she came back in, and away we went. Look, I am mad about it. Yeah, that's right. I am mad about it. I ain't happy about it. And I'm going to tell you what it is here in a moment. Let's go through this. I am mad about it. First off, hey, look, uh, use your brain, Mark Jackson. Use your brain. You got one of the cushiest jobs ever. And when I say ever, I mean ever. You literally don't have to be any good at it. I I don't know whether you are or not, but everybody says you are. So you don't have to be any good at it at all. Uh, so just go ahead and do it. You get to go to the NBA Finals. You get to be treated like a god. Everybody thinks that, you know what, you are the man. Your wisdom. You're going to go to Sacramento. You're going to get your brains beat out. And then you're going to have to hope you can get back to the job that you have. I don't think that's good business, job, Mark Jackson. I don't. I'm sorry. Maybe you do. But I don't think that's good business at all. I think the number one thing you need to do is keep the job you got, don't worry about it, and move along. Nothing to see here, baby. Not a damn thing to see here. Just keep the damn job you got. Sacramento is a cesspool. People lose when they go to Sacramento. They don't win. They don't. DeMontes Sabonis is your star. No. You don't want to deal with that. Who the heck wants to deal with DeMontes Sabonis? Jeez. What are we talking about? Anyway, uh, stay where you're at. I mean, we always, look, I don't know if John Gordon would think about this, but don't complicate winning, all right? Don't complicate winning is something that um, Dick Vermeil came into our locker room at Indiana and said, don't complicate winning. Well, don't complicate winning. Don't go to Sacramento. Don't even think about going to Sacramento. Keep the job you got. All right. Second thing that I'm mad about. Hey, look, I don't know what to tell you. But the governor of Oregon sent a bill, passed a bill that says we're going to put female menstruation products in our freaking bathrooms, boys' bathrooms. So you're going to walk into school. You're going to walk into the boys' bathroom. And there's going to be a tampon machine there. Look, I understand everybody must, what's the right word, uh, acquiesce. We all have got to give in. We've all, but look, the party of science is saying that boys can now have periods. That's the party of science. That's science. Let me ask you something. Show me the science on that. Show me the science that says boys can have periods. Not saying that girls dressed up as boys are trying. I'm just saying boys can have periods. And why do boys have to be subjected to that when the vast, vast majority, I'm not even. The one thing I like about our show here is we're not afraid. We're not afraid to talk about things. 
And the idea that boys are going to have periods to me is idiotic. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's not even, let, let, let's not even debate this. The, le, the, 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 the level of stupid here is beyond. The level of acquiescing here, and you can call me ignorant, you can call me whatever you'd like, and I really don't care. But the fact of the matter is, I don't understand. And maybe it's a, a lack of understanding. I understand people are transitioning. I know people that are transitioning. I know a young man who has transitioned to being a woman. I understand all that. But you got 999 boys in a, in a high school or whatever it is. And it, you got to put tampons. Why? What's the science behind that? You know, I, look, it's not a big deal. And I'm really not mad about it. I just think it's ridiculous. Maybe the name of the show should be This is Ridiculous. Uh, if you're going to have a period, then go in the women's bathroom. Go get yourself a tampon. Again, it's not that big a deal, and people will make a bigger deal about it because that's what we do. But honest to God, is it sci- are we doing science or aren't we doing science? You tell me. I don't know. I- I'm tired of hearing about the NHL playoffs are the best. The best, man. They're the best. They're the greatest. They are the absolute greatest. The NHL playoffs, nothing's like them. I got to tell you, I went to an NHL play, uh, not a playoff game. I went to a regular season game. I had the best seats in the house. Jason Benetti gave them to me. I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. I thought it was okay. Best thing about the NFL play or NHL playoffs is the handshake line at the end of the playoffs, and that's it. They don't handshake line every single time that they finish a game. The handshake line is at the end of the NHL play. Oh, man, those guys go hard. Yes, they do. They can only go a couple minutes on a shift because they go so hard. I agree. But don't tell me. I was bored to death in an NHL game. It sounded like church. It did. They put a microphone so you can hear the puck hitting. Hey, look, I've heard it's great. I'm going to go this year. I'm going to fly somewhere so I can go. But I'm so tired. Like, you don't have to disparage another sport to say that yours is great. Oh, man, the NBA playoffs suck because, you know, the NHL is where it's at. Yeah, maybe. Okay. But I'm tired of it. I've had enough of it. I've had enough of NHL guy thinking that he's edgy because he watches the NHL. I watch the NHL. I can sing the Chicago Blackhawks song. Here come the Hawks, the mighty Blackhawks. Yes. Yes. I know me some pucks. I know me some hockey. But I don't think their playoffs are any better. I think the NBA playoffs are great. Why? Because of the fans. I think the NHL playoffs are great. Why? Because of the fans. But I think in NHL, I think it's boring. What do you mean? They hit each other. They fight. They don't fight in the playoffs because they're too smart to fight in the playoffs. But NHL guy is nuts. Uh, I got to go back to something because our YouTube chat, my girl Jennifer, I love Jennifer. I'm not going to say her last name because y'all are crazy. Jennifer, DD, some of the guys in this YouTube chat could use a tampon every now and then, whining more than women. That's not me. That's Jennifer. (laughs) Nathan says, could you imagine the outrage of a guy walking in a women's bathroom? To protect that, you put tampons in the men's bathroom. What are we doing? What are we doing? 
But we're all supposed to just say, okay, right? That's what we're supposed to say. Nobody's supposed to stand up because the 1% or 0.01% is going to get mouthy and call you some kind of a phobe. I got no problem with tampons. I got no problem with transitioning. But how about we just use common sense, put the tampons into women's if that's what science says to do. (laughs) Jennifer, she's just out here speaking the truth, straighten all these clowns out. All right, let's see what else I got here. Oh, man. Uh, I'm so tired of this. I'm sorry, but I'm so tired of Joe Biden looking lost every day. Like, I'm going to do it every day, and you're going to get mad about it every day. But every day I look at and see Joe Biden looking like he don't know his ass from third base. Go ahead and play it if you could. I mean, if you guys don't mind playing this clip from Joe Biden. There's never been a senator from Delaware. It's every day. I mean, it is literally every day that this guy does something. Where's his wife? Isn't his wife a doctor? Isn't his wife like somebody that should protect her husband instead of trying to sell like 100 copies of her book? I mean, at some point, I would hope that my wife, because I'm, I don't know how my life's going to be. I'm 60 years old. I have no idea. But I would hope at some point my wife, if I am doing this show and I continue to embarrass myself because, frankly, I don't really know where the heck I am, I would hope at some point my wife would say, hey, Dan, enough. Like, I get it. You're the president and you say stupid stuff and the idiots that were holding up their phones trying to get a picture of them just laugh about it. But this is so this is every day. This is every time this guy gets in to the public view. You know, whether it's standing here looking to shake hands with somebody and not knowing where the hell he is. I mean, look, I understand how it makes us look to other countries, and that's the way that goes. But on a more personal level, shouldn't we or she or whoever is in charge of our president, shouldn't they take care of him at this stage of his life? Doesn't that just make sense? It does to me. And I've actually told Lee, like, I'm really not a conservative and I'm really not a liberal. I just pay attention. And in paying attention... This guy doesn't know where he is half the time. Yeah, I was watching Winning Time last night, the Lakers thing on, uh, on HBO. I had taped it because I was flying home Sunday night, and it's, you know, it's not one of those series that already happened, and you can go binge watch it. It's every Sunday night on HBO, so I had taped it. And last night I'm watching it, and this reminded me of somebody trying to take care of Joe Biden. The owner of the Lakers, Dr. Jerry Buss, had a decision to make. Is he going to play or is he going to have Paul Westhead, who's been running the team, continue on as the head coach? Or is he going to have Jack McKinney, 
who basically set up the program for the Lakers with Magic Johnson and Kareem and the rest, but he got in a horrific bike accident and his mental capacity is in question. So at the end of the day, Buss has to make this decision. Buss decides to go with what he said his heart and go and have Jack McKinney become the coach for the playoffs. It all had to be decided before the playoffs. McKinney started the season, got hurt. Westhead took it over, did really well. Now they're in the playoffs and McKinney's ready to come back. So Dr. Jerry Buss, he goes to McKinney's house with roses, with a bottle of wine or champagne to celebrate that he has picked Dr. Jack McKinney to be the head coach. McKinney opens the door. It's a little bit of a sun glare. McKinney looks, doesn't recognize his owner. And he doesn't not recognize his owner because of the glare. He doesn't recognize Dr. Jerry Buss because his mental capacities aren't quite there. They're not back from this horrific accident. And Dr. Jerry Buss, in an effort, he has to change course immediately because he understands that Dr. Jack Ramsey isn't mentally equipped to handle the job right now. So what does Jerry Buss do? He gives the flowers. He gives the champagne. He says, hey, I just want to tell you, uh, I'm glad you're up and around. And he leaves. He doesn't offer him the job. He then offers it to Westhead. He protected McKinney. Of course he protected the Lakers. Of course he did, right? Of course. But he protected McKinney as well. There is nobody here that is protecting our president. He is allowed to go out literally every single day in front of folks and look, frankly, demented and sad. Where are the people that truly, supposedly care about him? If they're there, I don't see them. And that, to me, is sad. Lastly, let's show the tweet, I think, about student loans. Are we really going to make folks that never went to college, are we really going to make my family, iron workers, uh, truck drivers, uh, steel workers, are we really going to make them those folks that never went to college, never thought about going to college, don't go to college, pay off folks who knowingly took out loans, knowingly, and if they didn't, it's on their own, knowingly had interest rates that are exorbitant, but they knew what they were doing. So now are we really going to go back? I think Senator Melendez is right. Biden says he's going to forgive federal student loan debt. The waitress, the Truck driver, the fast food worker who didn't go and couldn't afford college will pay college debts further. That's not right. Should the co as, as Allison Williams said last week, and we'll talk to Allison tomorrow, should colleges and should the student loan corporations be held accountable for basically the extortion? Absolutely. This should not happen. But asking these folks, the waitress, the truck driver, the fast food worker, people trying to get by to use your money, hell, my money. To pay off someone's student loan, that just seems, well, it doesn't seem right. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. It just absolutely does not seem right to me. And I would love that Senator Melissa Melendez said that. I love that she put that out there. I think she's absolutely right. And I think, frankly, that is a question that needs to be asked of anybody in your district or anybody representing you that is for 
that is for, excuse me, forgiving all the student loan debt to people that knowingly went into a contract. I just don't think it's right. You can. We can differ on it. But frankly, to me, no. I'm going to take a break today from who to bet on because I can't win a damn bet. I mean, I'm cold, 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 and more cold. I'm so damn cold, my head is froze. Usually my toes are cold here doing the show. But my head, I had to toe. You see this? This is a cinder block of frost. And I'm smart enough to know, ladies and gentlemen, when it's time to step back. If I see something, you can follow me on Twitter. I'll have it for you. If I like something... I'll put it out between noon to three on my show in Indianapolis. But I got to tell you, I got to tell you, man, I'm cold. When I'm cold, I step back. I don't force it. I reorganize. I talk about it. I tell you. I tell you this. I stinks. I do. I stinks to high heaven here in the last few days. Hell, I had the Dallas Mavericks minus six. It went up to six. I took them. Guess what? They lost by seven. I had the Mavericks plus. All of a sudden, late in the game, I had over uh, 207.5 last night. Late in the game, nobody's scoring. Philadelphia ain't scoring. They stop. If I bet it today, it's going to lose, and I'm off of this. No more today. Tomorrow, maybe. Later on today, maybe. I'm going to do some research. But I ain't happy about me. I'm down on me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm down on me. I'm as cold as Brad Buffington in Harvard, Illinois. 43 degrees. Yeah. Hey, look, if you're looking for something to track this afternoon, if you're bored, check out Harvard softball. Harvard softball taking on uh, the fighting big red of Cornell in Ithaca. If we win two or three, not this weekend, next weekend, it is on to the two out of three championship series of the Ivy League against the fighting whatever, Tigers of Princeton. Anyway, um, Thanks for joining us. Thanks to everybody on the YouTube chat, always making it spicy. I'm on 12 to 3, 107.5, the fan. You can catch me there. Uh, We're going to talk some foots. John Gordon, fantastic. All you folks that watched on on, uh, OutKick, thank you so much. I got an article coming out today about why I absolutely love, I love the NIL. I'm going to talk about, I love it. I do. I think it's great. It's like free agency in the NBA. It's terrific. Uh, but anyway, catch me noon to three. Davey and Dylan and Ryan and everybody. Ryan just keeps popping them up. Our show continues to evolve. More visuals, less me. Beautiful. Beautiful. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Dockets out.